Neil Jordan, it is brilliant to have you with me for 20 Questions With. I met you at a dinner in Oxford, at the Oxford Literary Festival, that I think was yeah. partly partly in your honour. And I sat next to your wife and had an yes. excellent conversation. And from that, I started to learn all about you. And of course, you are a multi-award winning director. You won the Oscar for Best Original Screenplay for The Crying Game. You're also, as well as an award winning director, you are an acclaimed novelist. And actually, that is partly the catalyst for this conversation because you've written a new book and it's called The Well yeah. of St Nobody. Do you feel most yourself when you're directing or writing? Well, the thing is that writing is a very solitary pursuit, you know, and uh, the hardest thing in life is, is, to, is to persuade yourself or impel yourself to go forward. Do you understand what I mean? And um, so if you're writing a novel, you're kind of working blind, really. You know, and you're, you've got a few perhaps ideas to hang things on. You have a few instincts. You don't know where they're going to go. And you're quite alone until the novel or the material begins to tell you what it wants. You know, whereas if you make a movie and then again, it could be a screenplay that I've written or it could be an adaption of a book or something like that. But like, but when you make a movie, everybody's saying, oh, yeah, yeah, I know what this means. Or, oh, yeah. You're going to do this now, aren't you? And you go, oh, sure, okay, or maybe not, or whatever, you know, and there's the whole dialogue. So the, the, the entire impulse to continue with the movie is obviously dynamic and unstoppable, you know, whereas with a novel, you can put it down at any point and say, I'm not sure about this, or, you know, and you're much more on your own. And I, 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 I like them both. I like I started as a novelist. I started as a short story writer in Ireland in the oh my god in the 70s and 80s yeah and there were no movies made in Ireland then at the time you know or the ones that were made were somebody like John Houston would come in from abroad and make a big production or something like that you know so and I began making films with John Borman you know John Borman that great British director so John had read some of my work, had shown my stories and some screenplays I'd written, and he asked me to work with him on Excalibur, a movie that he was making. And uh, so I worked with him on that, and I kind of saw the whole span of movie making, and I got immoderately excited by the process, let's put it that way, you know. So I began making films, you know, and when, when I did, I, I enjoyed the process of kind of constructing things visually and through the camera so much that I kept doing it really let's put it that way i'm curious to know to what extent you feel luck has played in your success because the end of the affair interview with the vampire the crying game as i've already said michael collins you know, these are giant movies and mm. you've had critical acclaim but you've also had commercial success and i just wonder whether you feel luck has played a part no, I don't think so. No, I, I think ill luck has played a huge part, actually, you know, really. I mean, with regard to Michael Collins, I, I made my first movie, Angel, that was produced by John Borman. And it was starring Stephen Ray, who nobody knew at the time. And uh, after that film, David Putnam called me and he asked me to write a script on this character, Michael Collins, or to consider making a movie with this character. And he at the time had a deal with Warner Brothers. So I wrote this script that I gradually fell kind of in love with you know but having finished it the studio just said no we don't we don't know what to know anything to do this is some Irish historical thing blah 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 you know and they let it they let it sit there for years and then I made um I kept trying to get it made you know kept asking them would you 
would you reconsider this again? They said, no. Or they just forgot about it. You know, studios are big, they're big, they're big impersonal kind of enterprises, you know. And then I made interview, interview the vampire for them and they, it was a considerable success. And they said, well, what do you want to do next? And I said, well, you've got this script of mine that nobody ever even looked at or nobody ever wants to make, you know, and it's called Michael Collins. So they read it and they said, okay, if you can make it for a certain figure, we'll do it. So that, and that was, I think, 15 years later from when I'd originally written the script, you know, and so it's, is that luck? I don't know. Is that look or is just accidents i think i think accidents is more more has more effect on one's career as a filmmaker than anything else sounds to me like success was built on success because you'd made a successful movie with the studio with the interview with the vampire mm -hmm. then you as it were were entitled to make michael collins well then they let me do that yeah they let they said we would consider it but it it it, it had to be done for a price you know but you know, it's okay. Maybe it's luck. Maybe it's not luck. I don't know. Is it luck? It's, uh, I mean, I made Interview the Vampire because I love the book so much, really, you know, that's the only reason I made it. And I'd made the crying game, obviously, that was incredibly hard to get financed and get going because it was, at the time, the themes were, they were unbelievably off-putting to the kinds of people who make films, you know, it was about terrorism, it was about race, it was about gender, all of those issues, all of those issues, any one of those issues would, would be a, a big no-no, as they said, you know, but to put the three of them together in the one film made it almost an impossible prospect, but we managed to make it and it became very successful. So I don't know, is it luck? I don't know, or persistence or... When you're making movies, and this is a sort of difficult question to ask without sounding cliched or trite, but I'll try anyway. Are you following the story? Are you wedded to the story? Are you most passionate about character? Are, are you trying to somehow get across a worldview or a particular view or outlook that you hold? Are you trying for us to learn things from your filmmaking? Or as I say, is it really about the, is it really about the story? Or maybe these maybe these themes follow from the story. If you tell a story really well, then something of the way, something of the way Neil Jordan looks at the world will sort of perhaps inevitably come out. Well, it's, it's, it's a bit more complicated than that. You're kind of waiting for the material to tell you something, you know, and it, it's, it's hard to describe. And sometimes the material doesn't tell you anything. I mean, to be honest, to be honest, I just made a movie where the material told me absolutely nothing. And when I finished it, I thought, oh my God, okay, what's going on here? But it's you're you're kind of waiting for the. I mean, you start with a script that, in most cases, I've written myself. You cast it with actors. If you cast it correctly, you know, you're in a state of kind of bliss because the actors are suit the roles. And then you try to discover what the characters are with the actor in question. You know, so all along the process, the material is telling you stuff. You know, do you understand what I mean? And you're you're kind of waiting to be illuminated by the series of elements that you're dealing with in, 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 the, in the whole project, you know, and it can be, it can, it can be a, uh, it can be a totally entrancing and, and kind of uh, creative process, or it can be a totally kind of gnarly and irritating and depressing prospect, you know what I mean? But it, I mean, it all depends on a series of initial choices you've made, and it all depends on whether the, the stuff is even worth being a movie or not. Do you understand what I mean? But I mean, I'm, 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 
a particular generation. I mean, I'm I'm of the uh, I'm somebody who started making films in an independent world. You know, the first movie I made was called Angel. The second one's called Company of Wolves. The third was called Mona Lisa, and they became increasingly more successful. You know, but so I started from the world of independent cinema. And I happened to go to Hollywood, you know, I made one or two movies that didn't do too well. Then I made one or two movies that did well. And uh, so I was part of the uh, the generation where independent movies took over, gradually began to penetrate the mainstream, mainstream. You know, there was myself, there was Jim Sheridan, there was Steven Soderbergh, there was uh, obviously Quentin Tarantino, you know, in the end, who came to dominate the whole place, you know, and uh, it's... Um, it was a process whereby the independent sensibility began to enter the mainstream. But I think that's all gone now, frankly, you know, I mean, because the entire the entire kind of machine seems to be dedicated to uh, to what they call franchises and to intellectual property and to, you know, to movies that are based on large comic strip kind of properties and stuff like that. So I'm part of the past. Let's put it that way now. No, I'd suggest I'd, I'd, su <laughs> I'd suggest you're very much part of the present. but. Mm -hmm. I, I suppose one of the reasons that I asked that question about what you're trying to tell us with your movie making is because the crying game was in many ways perhaps ahead of its time and you showed great empathy for characters that perhaps didn't get the empathy in Britain or Ireland that they deserved yeah. and you, you, were deal you were dealing with interesting challenging issues in a different time to where we are today. Yeah. And I and and I wonder whether that was sort of deliberate that you were, you were trying to tell us something that people count and that and that we should treat people with respect and with kindness because it's a very it's a very very kind film I mean it's an, but it but it's also a, it's also a, a absolutely remarkable story. Well, so no, I don't. I, that, it's the film that asks the question: Is where does human value lie? Do you understand what I mean? And I set myself a very, in a way, the movie was a series of assaults on the central character the stephen ray character okay so we start with a guy who's white who's irish who's republican yeah probably a catholic you know because members of the ira in the north of ireland were generally catholics you know and uh so he defines himself as that yes yeah. so in a way that this, the whole development of the plot was was a series of soul of assaults on that definition of himself he kidnaps a british soldier a black British soldier, yeah. He uh, he defines himself as an, a member of an oppressed minority. The soldier is kidnapped. Jody goes, "Hey, what the hell are you talking about, man? You know, look at my condition here. Look, look what I have to experience on the streets of Belfast." Do you, do you understand what I mean? I mean, all of those questions. I mean, I, I, what, I what I find interesting about life is 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 the kind of impenetrable questions in a way you know i mean i know many irish nationalists i know many people who have been involved in what you would call the nationalist struggle in the north of ireland who would be as racist as a white nationalist in kentucky do you understand what i mean and that's i find those contradictions interesting and that's what the movie was it was it was a series of assaults on fergus's definition of himself first of all as a freedom fighter second of all as a white guy, third of all, and I suppose most pivotally as a male, you know, you know, because he was sent on a journey to befriend this soldier's wife and he found that the soldier's wife was a, actually a man. You know? So that's, it was, it was that simple really, but it turned out to be really intriguing, you know, 
to audience as well, which was actually extraordinary because we released the movie in Britain first, yeah, before it was released in the United States. And, you know, the kind of, the response was, oh, yeah, it's okay, it's interesting. Neil Jordan doing another thing about weird people or whatever, you know. And the movie didn't do very well. Then it was released in the United States and the dreaded Harvey Weinstein took control of it. He, he I, I had written into the contract that he couldn't change. He could have no influence whatsoever on the cut of the film because I know what he liked. He liked to do that. He liked to cut things. Also that he couldn't change the title. He wanted to change the title. I said no. And uh, then I wrote a letter to all of the critics in, in the United States asking them, would it be possible in discussing the film, yeah, not to reveal the central, you know, the central kind of uh, reveal of the film, basically, yeah. So they had to talk about it and, and they had to manipulate their way around the terms he and she, yeah, which is kind of interesting. And, and surprisingly, all the critics agreed to do that only because they liked the film so much, you know. And in fact, the New York Times, I think, changed its house style. You know, they normally say when they describe an actor, Mr. Ray or Mr. Davidson, you know, Jay Davidson. Yeah. And they used they didn't use Mr. or Miss. They just they, they removed the antonyms or whatever the hell they're called. You know, like Mr. and Mrs. and all that sort of stuff. And uh, so then it became a huge success in the United States. You know, it was nominated for all these Oscars and and Mr. Weinstein began to propagate it as the film of the secret, which was kind of annoying in its, in its own way, but it still became a successful movie. Then it was re-released in the, in the UK and it became as successful as it was in the US. I mean, the, the, the point is nobody knows anything about what's going to happen to your film, you know, or your book, incidentally, you know. I mean, we're going we're gonna to come. If you have an enormous success, at least one used to be surprised by that fact, you know. I don't know if that's the case anymore. I don't want to get into the sort of well, you can get into whatever you want, but I'm I'm not asking you to get into the details of the culture wars and the rights and the wrongs and but I just wonder whether you know standing back from it, whether yeah. you whether you whether it saddens you the toxicity surrounding the trans conversation at the moment because it seems to me that there's so much anger, so much hatred, so much sort of pot stirring, on sort of as it were almost all sides, and I and I. Because your film addresses a, a sort of trans conversation in such a, I think, sensitive way, a rather, be rather yeah, beautiful yeah. way. Yeah, well, well, I mean, the truth is that uh, I suppose now I would be, when I was directing the movie and working with Jay Davidson, who was, had never acted before, by the way, but was like this entrancing, beautiful human being, you know. And Jay kept saying to me, I am not, the word he used then was transvestite, which no. I, well, I said trans, but I know. No, I understand. I understand. And we had several trans characters in the film, and they were actually trans. You know, we're going through transition as we understand it now, and all that sort of stuff. But Jay, Jake constantly said to me, "I'm a gay man," you know, which obviously was the truth. You know, he happened to be to wear a dress beautifully, you know, and to uh, present himself as a female absolutely beautifully. But uh, do you mean he did in the film? He did that, or do you mean in real life? No, in the film. In the film. Yeah. yeah. But I mean, it was the there were several characters in the film because we had to populate that bar and we had to we had to we had to build among all the extras and all that sort of stuff. There were several characters who were going through transition at the time, you know, and I um, I began to do a, a, a small documentary kind of examination of 
you know, people's lives in that way. And I found many, many, came across many people who were living either in transition, yeah, or living as women, presenting themselves as women, who entered relationships exactly the same way as the, uh, as happened in the film, you know. Very many of them were Irish, yeah. And inevitably the case would come where, you know, there'd be a flirtation or there'd be a series of datings and stuff like that. And eventually the, would come a point when they'd say, well, I'm not exactly everything you think I am, you know, whereupon the, uh, their new partner would say, oh, well, that's fine. <laughs> it's okay. Do you understand what I mean? So, I mean, it told me that gender is not as important a fact as we all think, you know, but, but um, I, I don't think, you know, that film, The Crying Game was part of that era, you know, you know, it's the whole trans issue, trans, trans issue has become a much more, much more combative and much more kind of uh, politicized thing these days, which I think is a terrible pity. Let me put it that way. What sort of a man are you, Neil? Because you work, I mean, you're, you're so well rewarded in terms of awards. And so you've got a, a huge reputation, but you're also you spend quite a lot of your life behind the scenes, you know, behind the camera. And yet you work with these massive names, Brad Pitt, Liam Neeson, Tom Cruise, Robert Downey Jr., Robert De Niro, Demi Moore, you know, Gemma Arterton, Kirsten Dunst, massive names. And I wonder how you bring the best out of them, how you relate to them. What, well, what's... I, I mean, I, I don't really. I, I mean, I, I think, you know, if you think of us, somebody who, who who you presume is a star, you know, before they were a star, they were an actor, you know. So I, re I relate to people as actors insofar as I can. I mean, Robert De Niro is a great actor. Obviously, Tom Cruise and Brad Pitt are superb actors. Kirsten Dunst was, that was the first part she played, actually, I think, in the interview with the vampire. She turned out to be a great, great actor, and I kind of knew she would. I, but I love, what I really like to do is work with actors who are really established and with unknowns. Do you understand what I mean? Like in The Crying Game, I had Stephen, I had Miranda Richardson, I had, you know, you know, I had Forrest Whitaker, with, with somebody who had never acted before, Jay Davidson, yeah? Similarly, in Interview with the Vampire, I had Tom Cruise, Brad Pitt, you know, Antonio Banderas against Stephen Ray, yeah? With somebody who had never acted before. And then maybe she had done some small acting, but never in the in the way that she was, that she had to do in this film, and that was Kirsten Dunst, you know, and I find it really interesting because the the professional, uh, the the experienced actors, they they they, f they they go through two emotions. First of all, they think, they think, oh my God, I used to, I used to do it like that, yeah, yeah. Second of all, they think, how can I get back to doing it like that? You understand what I mean? Because an on actor had learned no technique whatsoever. All they have is themselves, you know, and the camera immediately sees that and and kind of relishes it, glory, glorifies, you know, glories in it in a way, you know. And I did it the same in a movie, a movie that not many people have seen called The Butcher Boy, where I cast a kid called Eamon Owens, who had never acted before, with a huge range of English and Irish professions. He blew them off the screen, literally blew them, every one of them off the screen. And, and it's, it's an extraordinary thing to see. And it brings the more professional actors, even the stars, you know, it ups their game tremendously, I think, you know. Is chemistry between actors on set something that they either have 
or don't have? Or is it something that you as a director can help them to develop? I don't don't just mean sexual chemistry. I mean the chemistry when two actors come together in a really powerful way. Well, you you can't, you know, I don't know what to say about that, really. I mean, sometimes people hate each other in life. They often hate each other, don't they? You know, I mean, sometimes you get actors who basically in normal life, in real life, wouldn't get on. But because you're stuck in this in this in this community, in this little weird bubble you build, they have to get on, you know. And I think what happens is often the character the character that is being played, you know, the character that is written or the character that's been developed as being acted, takes over from, you know, from the natural messiness of the human beings involved, you know. I mean, you can't demand that everybody loves each other all the time, you know, can you? Well, I mean, maybe you can, but I wouldn't be able to succeed in that demand, you know. Does being an author help you as a director? And does being a director help you as an author? And at the heart of this question is, I think, wondering about how visual you see yourself. I mean, obviously, films are a visual medium. Yeah, yeah. Well, well I mean, um, when I started writing, I was often criticised because uh, so much of my writing involved visual description, yeah. And that's one of the reasons why I began to explore movies. You know, the first novel I wrote was called The Past. It was about a photographer, you know. And uh, people would ask the question, is it appropriate for somebody, you know, using words to generally describe visual images at such length as I did, you know, which I did go on an enormous length about how things looked and the composition of things I saw and stuff like that. You know, so, I mean, you can, you know, obviously film is a visual medium, you know, and it's, uh, it's a great thrill to build, to have images in your mind and to be able to construct them, an imaginary picture you see in your brain and be able to construct on a stage, on a landscape, or whatever. But, you know, some of the best directors in the world have not been particularly visual directors. Look at Sidney Lumet, you know? I mean, he made some of the best New York York pictures you've ever seen. I wouldn't say you would describe him as a visual talent, you know? You know, he was great at the dynamism of emotion, and he was great with the kind of uh, interaction of actors, like, you know, Al Pacino and John Casale and people like that. But you wouldn't describe him as as a... as a visual artist, really, would you? But yet he was a great director. So it, it's kind of a strange thing, you know. Ken Loach is a direct, great director, but would you describe him as a particularly visual director? I don't I don't think you would. I don't want to give too much, if anything, away of The Well of St. Nobody, but okay. perhaps you could explain to people where that story comes from in you. I know, I know you were influenced, as you say, at the end by a couple of movies that you watched that you, you haven't mm-hmm. forgotten. But I wonder if you could just explain where it comes from inside you, what you're trying to do. Okay, okay, okay. Well, I mean, <laughs> on the one hand, I wanted to see a romantic, uh, an emotional relation, deeply emotional relationship between two older people. Okay. Now, one is older than the other. Tara, that's her name. She's probably late 40s, early 50s. You know, William is, you know, late 50s, early 60s. I also, I'm kind of tired with, bored with popular culture. Do you mind me saying that? It bores the hell out of me. You know, the kind of TikTok world that we live in, the kind of, you know, the way every movie is drenched in kind of pop music and all that. I wanted to write about people whose engagement with the difficult art was quite profound, you know, and that's, that's, that's classical music, the world of classical music, you know. And uh, 
also there was a film directed by a director called Max Ilfels, yeah, which is called Letter from an Unknown Woman, which had a story that intrigued me and I didn't know what to do with it. It's, it's about two people and they met three or four times through their lives and one never forgets these meetings and the other totally forgets, never remembers that he's met this person before. And I thought that was an intriguing premise for a film. And, you know, I thought about it for a long time and then I play music myself, you know, I used to play the classical guitar when I was a kid and all that stuff. And uh, I was hit by an affliction. My hands were hit by a very, very, really virulent form of psoriasis. Yeah. So I literally, my hands turned out into dragon hands, you know, and I couldn't move them. I could hardly pick up things. And I thought, what if this happened to a pianist, you know, wouldn't that be interesting? And then the story that I'd seen in a movie a long, long time ago kind of began to feed into that. You know, so it's about a pianist who retires to a house that he's bought but never really lived in in West Cork. And there's a woman that he's met three times in his life who remembers every details of these meetings and he remembers nothing of them. And she takes a job in his house as a housekeeper. And initially she means to kind of punish, punish him for his lack of memory, but circumstances and a whole series of events change that, that, that instinct towards revenge, let's put it that way. I want to tell you very briefly about my grandfather, who was a Jewish refugee, and mm. he was a concert pianist. Mm. He premiered the Webern Variations in pre-war Berlin. He was from Vienna, actually. And yeah. when he became integrated into British society, he, he, he was sent off to Australia, as other emigres were, on the De Niro boat. Okay. Tried to remember how old he was then. He was in his 20s or 30s. And... He resumed his career as an international concert pianist in Britain. There's still a picture of him up at the in his in program notes at the Wigmore Hall above Kathleen Ferrier. And okay. something went wrong with his finger, with one of oh. his fingers, which meant wow. that he could not play to the level that he needed to be able to play. And I think yeah. he barely once he had to stop his professional career, he went on to become the chief music critic of the Telegraph, working in a language that was not his first language. But I, I think he barely touched the piano when he had to stop, presumably, or perhaps because it was too painful. I played in front of him a, a few times as a boy, which I enjoyed doing because I learned the piano as well. You're, you're, you play the piano yourself. Yeah, I've got a piano just over over there. I wanted to be an I wanted to be an opera singer actually. My great 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 uncle was Johann Strauss. Yeah, really. And, yeah, and Are you my, a Strauss? I'm not a Strauss. I'm a Stadlin. And he was by marriage. You, but none... you say your great your great uncle was Johann Strauss. My great 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 uncle was Johann Strauss. Yeah. Well, you know, you know, you know, if you've been to Budapest, it's full of Strausses. I have been to Budapest. I, funnily enough, in Budapest, when, when I was in a restaurant, this was many years ago, I think about nineteen ninety nine. A violinist came in. I think a traveller or gypsy violinist came in and just played to us. You know, played to the people dining there. And the skill was something that you'd be. Mm. You, players in the in the Wigmore Hall would be proud of. I mean, it was quite breathtaking. Anyway, so of course, there, there's that theme chimes with me, the, the theme the theme in the book, personally. Do you enjoy the act of writing? I know you talked about, about it earlier and compared it because it's a very solitary occupation compared to being a director, compared to almost anything, really. But do you enjoy the flow of it? Do you get into a, a zone, Neil, where it just works? Or do you really have to battle away at it? You have to you you have to wrestle with it, you know. I mean, I I enjoy it when something is half finished and you know where it's headed. Do you understand what I mean? But the up to that point, it's just about it's a wrestle. It's kind of a 
you're kind of blundering in the dark. You're fighting with fighting with shadows, really, trying to grab onto them, see that they exist, see they want to tell you anything. You know what I mean? What was your grandfather's name? Sorry, he was called Peter Stadlin. Peter Stadlin. Peter Peter Stadlin was how it was pronounced in. And was it his left hand or his right hand that that was afflicted? I don't know, or if I did know, I've forgotten. I was going to call this novel Concerto for the Left Hand after the Ravel Concerto that was written for, you know, Wittgenstein's brother, I think it was, who lost his right hand in the First World War, wasn't it? Yeah. The, 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 other, the other thing, by the way, is that my grandmother, late grandmother, who is Peter's wife, mm-hmm. she studied under Wittgenstein at Cambridge. Oh, did she? Okay. okay. She was also a Jewish, Jewish woman who, who managed to get out of Austria before the war and she went to Wittgenstein's lectures and got a first in philosophy in her part one. She wasn't able to pick up her degree because in those days women weren't awarded degrees. Okay. And so we had a we, we had a wonderful day in Cambridge when she went to pick up her degree in her 80s and I just got my degree from Cambridge and my dad, I think, picked up his MA from Cambridge or whatever it was. It was a very special moment. Anyway, enough about me and my family, but it's just... These themes provoke provoke my interest do you see yourself and you may not spend any time seeing yourself as anything but to the extent that you do if you do do you see yourself as a filmmaker or an irish filmmaker or in any sort of tradition well there is no tradition of irish filmmaking you know i mean there may be now but when i started out there wasn't you know and there's a tradition of irish writing yeah you know irish dramaturgy there's a tradition of obviously you know there's james singh the sean o'casey there's a tradition of irish writers being thrown out of the country and not causing not being let back you know but that seems to have ended now i i mean i'm very much an irish figure of course i am you know and uh, all my books are set in ireland every book i've written i think yeah everything i've written is set in ireland yeah yeah uh the movies have gone far and wide which is maybe one of the reasons i probably made them you know but well, sorry, your question was, do I see myself as an Irish fig- figure or a... As an Irish filmmaker, not in the sense that they're necessarily... A, a, I, don't, I, don't, I don't see myself as an Irish filmmaker, really. I see myself as an independent filmmaker, you know, probably. But, I mean, nobody knows I write books. People know I make movies, but if, if, if I happen to say to them, oh, I have a book coming out, they go, what? I say, yeah, I've written 10 of them or eight of them or whoever. They go, really? Write books? Yeah. The minute I started making movies, it was if there was no literary being whatsoever called Neil Jordan. It's very, it was very strange. It's something to do with the culture that we live in. You know, people are defined as one thing. And, uh, you know, I don't see why a painter can also be, can also make sculptures, you know, sculptures, you know. I don't see why, you know, we shouldn't do many things at the same time, you know, but the culture gets very impatient with that. So, or, you know, so. As an author, you you have an editor, you presumably have a literary agent and you have publicists and so forth. But as we've discussed, it is, uh, you know, it's at the heart of it is, is sort of you. As a director, you've got a team, haven't you? You're working with producers and executive producers, directors of photography and so forth. And one area of filmmaking that perhaps isn't discussed as much is the director of photography role. How important is that to you? Because you obviously have a very strong visual sense, as we've discussed well, yourself. It's incredibly important, but it's become less important with uh, the whole digital world of things, you know, which is, I mean, it's become very strange. I mean, the director of photography, the camera, the cinematographer of a film, it used to be the most mysterious area that people 
couldn't penetrate. Do you understand what I mean? When it was when it was negative film, you know, there were things to know about that were very hard to know about. You know, measuring light levels, you know, you know how colors would respond to the negative and all that sort of stuff. Now everybody's got a camera, you know, the little cameras on their phones, you know, do that job. And it's very hard to find that special eye that used to automatically be there. That's this is what I find that used to automatically be there among this community, you know. It, it was almost like it was almost like a medieval trade that was mysterious and kind of blessed in a way, you know. And it's become part of everybody's contemporary argot, which is a bit weird, you know. I mean, if you make a movie now, it's very. If I make a film, <clears throat> for example, uh, to shoot it on film is very expensive. It's much simpler, yeah, because the cameras are simpler. You don't need these big video screens and all that sort of stuff. But to get the labs, to be able to hire the labs and get the lab work done and all that, makes the film much more expensive. So there is all this pressure to work on digital. So when you're shooting a movie, there's cables everywhere attached to cameras. There's a whole thing called a video village with huge screens, you know. Um, they do a thing called a, called a lookup table, L-U-T, yeah, which is meant to define the way the films look. You do a series of tests, yeah. So you're on the set, you're shooting, and you go, you go. the cameraman comes in, and you go, this doesn't look like a series of elements we agreed on. He goes, oh, that's because the screen is not balanced, and he begins to twiddle, tom, twiddle little knobs, and suddenly, okay, I go, excuse me? what's the conversation here you know the kind of thing it's very it's very it's, it's a different world believe me and it's not as beautiful a world at all you don't hear the whirring of the little mechanism that used to push the film through the sprockets and all that which is a beautiful thing yeah are you most in your element neil when you are casting when you're directing actually sort of make making the film on set or maybe i don't know whether you rehearse do you rehearse in films i do i i, I rehearse but i rehearse I'm very selfish. I rehearse in order to rewrite the roles and the dialogue, you know, around the actors and stuff like that. No, the, the thing is, if you're an impatient kind of person, I am a very impatient kind of person, you know. I'm somebody who's probably just ADHD, overactive and stuff like that, you know. And uh, if you're on a film set, every different instinct you have, every different kind of way of observing the world you have is put to, is put to use almost immediately. So. For someone like me, it can be a very happy place to be. You're, you're never bored, and boredom to me is the worst. What I was going to ask as part of that question is, was to give you the option of saying in the edit suite. I mean, some people I can imagine absolutely love that part of the process. You know, yeah. when you when you've got all you've got these ingredients, you've got what you filmed, you've got music, you've got all sorts of ways of enhancing and changing and fiddling and improving and you know almost repainting a movie in the edit suite how, how how what's that part of the whole project like for you well that that's yourself and the editor and a bunch of uh, yourself and the editor the composer the sound mixer or the, the sound designer and stuff like that it's a very happy time you know it's there's no pressure there's not as much pressure and it's a delightful thing but then again the technology keeps changing you know what i mean and look you know I'm, I don't know how many more films I'll make, okay, because I've got about three movies that I want to make. I don't know if the world will allow me to make them or the powers that be will ever let me make them. I would like to make a film of this book, actually, but it would be such a, it would be such a kind of art house product that I'm not sure anybody would ever want to make it, you know, that kind of thing. But I've got two or three things I want to make, 
and then I just keep writing books, I think, you know, because you, 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 you know, popular culture just changes and there's nothing you can do about that. You know, I mean, we live in a, a kind of a world. Look, I mean, what movies are people going to go to see over this summer? They're going to see Oppenheimer. They're going to see Barbie. They're going to see the Tom Cruise movie. Okay. And there probably will be one independent movie that grabs people's attention the way everything everywhere blah 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 all at once is that's what seems to be happening with the culture you know there's the huge hollywood product and there's one independent movie that breaks through you know and that seems to be the world we live in there's nothing i can do about that except i can perhaps try and make the three or four movies i still have written that i'd like to make what does change what did what the changing fashions what do the power of studios what does the industry do to you what has it done to you and your self-belief your self-confidence does it affect it at all or do you sort of stand strong amidst all that because it's a very I was just gonna I was just gonna quickly say because you know it's a very unusual place to be I imagine you've won all these awards you've had all this success and yet you can't still just click your fingers and say this is something I really want to do I'm going to do it oh I can't do that no 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 but I, I don't think I ever could you know, but I mean, if you look at, I mean, the studio I've had most, I suppose the biggest relationship is Warner Brothers, you know, um, I don't know why I only made three movies for them. And it used to be a great place. It used to be, to me, it was like the Vatican City of movie making. Seriously, it was. Yeah. But now Warner is owned by Discovery Channel. You know, that's a different world. It's a totally different world. This storied kind of place that went back to the roots of movie making this beautiful lot up in Burbank you know where Clint Eastwood made all his films and he had a bungalow there you know it's like I mean I I I suppose not many directors like me do end up going to Hollywood I did end up going to Hollywood you know and I kind of I kind of made some stuff I was very happy with it was always mine whether it was whether it succeeded or failed you know and uh but it's a different world, you know? I remember meeting um, the uh, Bob Daly and Terry Samuel, who used to run Warner Brothers, yeah? Used to be the most feared people in Hollywood, yeah? Gentlemen, you know? And they, they came over to London to meet Stanley Kubrick, you know? Stanley would give them, Stanley would have finished the script, yeah? Bob and Terry would fly to London, stay in a hotel room, Mr. Kubrick would have the script delivered. They would read it in their hotel room, yeah? And then they would discuss the parameters of making this movie over the next few days, yeah? Now, that was a studio that, whether you think it makes drafts or whatever, but it did support the idea of movie making. Do you understand what I mean? And I don't, that studio doesn't exist anymore. I mean, the, the physical lot does, but not that mentality. You want to, are, you, are, you, are you lamenting the lost world as you see it of movie making? Well, I, I mean, it's, there's beautiful things there, isn't there? You know, I mean, there's absolutely beautiful movies that have been made, you know. And, um, you know, they're, they're not making them anymore. <laughs> I'm sorry, they're not. I want to ask you about your relationship with certain actors, just in the sense, as you've already said, you, you've kept coming back, haven't you, over your career to Stephen Ray. You've worked a lot with Liam Neeson. Mm. Explain that part of the way you do movies that you you develop relationships with actors and you work with them repeatedly 
Oh, well, no, it's a different thing. They're, Stephen and Liam are people I knew when I was younger. Yeah. We were all in the same boat in Dublin in the 70s, you know, hanging around pubs, wondering how you'd ever make even, you know, make, a, you know, an interesting piece of theatre, let alone an interesting movie. You know, so they're relationships that I've had for a long, long time. You know, we knew each other when we were kids. Yeah. And uh, it's different from the relationship I would have with someone like Tom Cruise or Brad Pitt or, you know, Ray Fiennes, you know. But I mean, I'd love to work with Tom again. I'd love to work with Brad again or Ray Fiennes again. But the context changes, you know, because, you know, they're, you know, I live in Ireland, I suppose, you know, and uh, I would have loved to do a few more movies with Bob Hoskins, but sadly he died, you know, so anyway, that's what happens. But just just the act of working with someone, mm. you know, several times or a lot of times in the case of Stephen, mm. does that bring a different dimension to the movie making? Oh, without, without a doubt. I mean, Stephen is an actor who regards himself. I mean, he's had several. He's had Stephen has relationships with writers. You know, he had a relationship with Harold Pinter. He had a relationship with Samuel Beckett. He was directed by Samuel Beckett. He had a very intense relationship with uh, with uh, sorry what's his name you're talking about what you're talking about working relationships neil working relationships yes 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 and he's had a relationship with me you know so w when you work with stephen he, he regards himself as an interpreter of what's written you know and that's a really rewarding thing to do you know to be it's, it's a really rewarding place for me to be as a director you know and uh I mean, for example, for the crying game, as I was writing the script, I was describing to Stephen what I was writing, you know, and he shared my excitement with where it was going. When when I came to do interview with the vampire, there was a part, uh, there was a vampire called Santiago, and I wanted to cast Stephen in that role. And I wrote all of these little theatrical vignettes for this character to play. I knew Stephen was the only person who could deliver the specific theatricality that I needed, you know. When I did the end of the affair, I asked Stephen to play the cuckolded husband, yeah, which is a very difficult request to give to an actor, you know, because none of us likes to regard themselves as the one who doesn't give their wife any pleasure, you know, while she goes off with another man to have a, an affair and the love of her life and blah, 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 all that sort of stuff, you know. But he saw that it was a far more interesting role than, you know, the cliche of that character could, could, you know, could be, could present itself as, and he made something marvelous of that, you know, so that's the kind of actor. I've done quite a few movies with Ian Hart, actually, who's a really beautiful actor. I love working with Ian, you know, but I suppose you'd call them character actors, you know. Are you fulfilled? Yeah, 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 I think so, yeah. Yeah, that's, uh, I am. I mean, you know, the, you know, people would regard me as older, you know, I'm in my early 70s, you know, but I don't feel that. That's the bizarre thing about going older these days, you know, it's a strange thing. You know, the world says, haven't you been around for a long time? You go, oh, no, I just feel like I just arrived here. There's so many things to do. <laughs> but uh, it's, it's cool. It's, it's, I'm, you know, I'm enjoying myself at the moment. Let's put it that way. Is classical music something that gives you outside of your work? Um, and maybe inside of your work as well, some of the great pleasure in your life? Well, I did when I was a kid, mainly Baroque music, you know, because I played the classical guitar. And if you do that, you kind of, 
you end at the mid you end at the 18th at the 1800s you know and then the repertoire begins again in around 1920 so you become this absurd snob you know the entire the romantic period you kind of regard as this kind of emotional trash <laughs> but no it's 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 actually one of the reasons i wanted to place this novel in the world of classical music and in the world of austere music really you know was because it is so satisfying and it's so satisfying because it's so demanding you know you say you say johann strauss you know i'm a total fan of richard strauss you know really i'm sorry to be be that kind of a fan but his music is so austere and so oddly beautiful you know that kind of thing and i know he has a questionable political past but still you know the kind of intensity of some of his stuff does overwhelm me you know and i don't i don't, I don't think all of music should be immediately accessible and immediately easy i think I, I like stuff that's difficult as well you know what sort of life do you lead me oh just you know i have grandkids you know i live quite a nice life i think you know not extravagant not extravagant i live in dublin you know at the moment i'm in spain i have a house in catalonia that i spend time in you know so that's my life you know final question you're obviously a man of enormous talent what are you what are you sort of good at outside of work do you have any special skills that we should know about outside of work and also not just do you have special skills but do you what are your passions outside of family work and classical music (laughs) <laughs> no, no, I like popular music too, okay? I like mountain biking, okay? I like keeping fit, you know? I like, I wish I could do more extreme sports, but, you know, I, I can't. I, I do like mountain biking. I like getting my bike going across empty mountains and uh, riding for about four or five hours. But I can rarely get anybody to do it with me, so. I'm so you're, 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 you're physically pretty tough and resilient, but you wouldn't be able to hold your own in a fight against Liam Neeson? I've never fought any. I've never punched anybody in my life. Believe me, never. You know, I've been punched a few times. I wouldn't even know how to punch somebody. Mm-hmm. That's true. That's absolutely true. Neil Jordan, it's been so interesting asking you twenty questions. Thank okay. you so much for your twenty answers. Thank you very much. Thank you. Goodbye now. See you, Matt. Thanks. Sure you. See you later.